about Jesus is he has a lot of significant conversations with a lot of very different types of people. And so we try to uh, look at that and pick some of these conversations at very different types of people. The first week we had a very religious man who was also very, you know, blessed by God. He had a lot of wealth. Uh, and when Jesus has this conversation with him about eternal life, he realizes that he loves his wealth more than God, so he turns away. Then the next week, we talked about Zacchaeus, who is also having this conversation with Jesus about eternal life. And Zacchaeus is a very wealthy man, but very irreligious. And yet, what happens is when he receives Jesus, he receives salvation, what does he do? He gives away his wealth, um, which if you think about it, it should have been backwards how that scenario happened, but it wasn't. So it's pretty interesting how those happen. Then today, we're going to be talking about Nicodemus. We're going to be looking at John 3, verses 1 to 21. Uh, what's interesting and what we should be learning today and realizing is that Jesus is having conversations with different people, uh, very different backgrounds, different lives, but they keep on coming back to the same thing. Uh, and so while we read this passage, if you've been tracking with us, uh, you can kind of start to hear some of that, uh, try to make those connections on your own. If you haven't, then welcome, um, and you can kind of join with us as we look at what are these significant conversations that Jesus has. So we're going to start off, I'm going to read the passage for today in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is a good question. Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he is not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light 
and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amen. I know most of us have never heard John 3.16 in context, so welcome to where that verse came from. It is one of the most quoted, uh, well-known passages in the entire Bible. Uh, But I want to focus on, uh, first, Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus, and uh, what is this conversation he has with Jesus um, that leads us to John 3.16? So first off, Nicodemus is a religious ruler. He is a prominent teacher, and he is a Pharisee. Uh, So some of those things uh, are given to us. It says that he is a ruler of the Jews here. Uh, When Jesus refers to him, he says, are you the teacher of Israel? Meaning he was a prominent teacher. He was a well-known teacher. You don't assign the to something unless it has some significance to it. Um, And he's also a Pharisee. If you don't know what a Pharisee is, Pharisees are the sect in Judaism that they prided themselves in following the law. Meaning, if there was anyone in Israel that followed the law as best as a human could possibly do it, that was a Pharisee. So this is who Nicodemus is. And he has this conversation with Jesus. And what is it about? We should be familiar with this, like we said. He is talking with Jesus about eternal life. I love that no matter who uh, comes up and talks to Jesus, somehow Jesus makes the conversation about salvation. It doesn't matter what they say or how the conversation begins. Usually uh, it's people coming up to Jesus and complimenting uh, him and then him kind of sidetracking the compliment and uh, and then turning it into about salvation in a way that's really funny because it's kind of like a sarcastic uh, change in direction. Like the rich young ruler, uh, he says, you are good teacher. And Jesus is like, how do you know I'm good? You don't know that I'm the son of God. You don't know what good is. And so then he, with Nicodemus, he says, you are, you are amazing. You are, you have done miracles. Nobody can deny that you are sent from God. And he looks at Nicodemus and he says, Only people who are born again can see the kingdom of heaven, basically telling him, you're not born again. You you don't actually know what you're saying. And so, but what Jesus does is he constantly brings it back to this topic of eternal life or salvation. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and we're going to get a Justin translation of, uh, of what happens in this conversation. I had a de-ghettoized this conversation in my notes a couple of times, so still a little bit, but (laughs) Nicodemus comes and he says, hey, you are from God. The stuff you do is crazy. That's basically what Nicodemus is saying. Jesus is like, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. What do you know? Be born again. Nicodemus is confused. Born again? What does that mean? How is that possible? I'm old. This, do you understand how this works? Jesus, his reply to him is water and spirit. Basically, what Jesus is, is doing is he is quoting an Old Testament passage that I want to read with you because it has significance in who Nicodemus is supposed to be, the one who follows the law, who knows it front and back, who's the teacher of Israel, who is a ruler of the Jews, And he says, how can we be born again? What are you talking about? 
and Jesus quotes Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 to 27, says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So uh, a lot of times we can read this passage and think that Jesus is talking about two births when he says water and spirit, but he's actually talking about one. And he's talking about one birth that is of God, that one cleanses you and B puts his spirit inside of you. And so Jesus is using this Old Testament reference to talk to Nicodemus because of who he was. And Nicodemus is confused at this. He says, how can this be done after Jesus says this to him? And what I love, what I love about Jesus is he's using salvation and being born again to explain this to somebody. He's using an Old Testament reference. For all you theology heads, let that just sit on you for a while. It's, it's powerful. So Jesus, when Nicodemus asks how this can be done after Jesus says by water and the Spirit... Jesus kind of slaps him in the face. He says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? I mean, that's, that's like painful, you know? Like, if you, if you like are a prominent person, and you have studied your whole life about something, and then this upstart, this newbie comes on the scene, and then you're asking questions, and he's like, this is... This is 101, and you don't know this? Basically saying, you should know, O great teacher of Israel. But Nicodemus' question, I'm happy that he asked it, because ultimately it led Jesus to explaining some of the most quoted, but also amazing doctrine that we have in Scripture. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to go over kind of these uh, four things. Jesus leads Nicodemus through this incredible doctrine that I want to lead us through. Uh, we've talked about salvation. We've talked about eternal life. We've seen it at play in the life of Zacchaeus. We've seen it um, at, at odds with our own heart in the life of the rich young ruler. But now as Jesus is talking with a religious leader, as he's talking with a Pharisee, he actually dives in to the theology of it. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to dive into the theology of it because it's fascinating and incredible to hear how Jesus explains what we've seen in action the past couple of weeks. And so the first thing that Jesus said is God the Father loved the world. In verse 16, this is you know, the famous one, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this may not seem very big to us because this verse has, you know, been cliche and uh, we've heard it quoted a million times, but I want us to jump back in time to Nicodemus's head for a moment and try to understand why this was mind-blowing to him. See, back then, uh, if you read the Old Testament, 
when you read about God loving people, you read mostly only about God loving his people, which is Israel, the Jews. And whenever you hear God talking about the world, you really hear him talking about the world in terms of evilness, in terms of sin, and in terms of judgment. And so the Israelites were used to kind of being the apple of God's eye, uh, the people he was most affectionate about, the people that he constantly talked about how much he loved, yet uh, here is Jesus. It comes on the scene. The New Testament doesn't exist. Obviously, it's, it's being written right now. It's, it's happening. It's in the process. And so we know they don't know. And so Jesus, he doesn't say God so loved Israel. He says God so loved the world. And when talking to a theologian, that is a big deal because he would have understood the nuance of what Jesus was saying. And Jesus is explaining this amazing truth that God deeply loves the world. And he loved the world so much that he gave his firstborn to die for it. Now, the significance of the firstborn son also means something here to Nicodemus. In the ancient Near Eastern culture, the kind of most prized possession, you could say, that a father would have was his firstborn son. Because that was the heir to his home. That was his legacy. That's where most of his inheritance would go to. That's where the birthright would go to. All of this stuff in ancient culture, how they passed on land, how they passed on kind of their traditions, how they passed on their culture and their family was to the firstborn son. And so for someone to willingly sacrifice their firstborn son to a death would be the ultimate of ultimate sacrifices that you could see. In the Old Testament, we see there was only one person that was tested in this way, and that was Abraham, the father of Israel. And Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac and he goes to do it, but he never actually has to go through with it. But yet here, God goes through with it. God the Father gives up his son, Jesus Christ. And so to Nicodemus, he is realizing something here that I want us to kind of go into the rest of the sermon with, and that is that God deeply loves us. And the only way to express to us the depth of God's love, the only way I think for us to comprehend how deeply God loves for us just in a moment before we move on is to say this, that there's no way that we can comprehend how deeply he loves us. I think that is literally the only way for us to understand and realize the impact of what Jesus is saying here is if you are trying to comprehend the depth of the love of God for you right now, realize that in the depth of your imagination, you cannot comprehend the depth of God's love. And with that, I want us to go to our second point that Jesus describes, that the world stood condemned. Verse 17 in the beginning, it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. In 18, it says, Whoever does not believe is condemned already. So Jesus does not come to earth to say, You are bad people. He doesn't come to say, You are going to hell. First thing that he says is that God loves you. 
even though he knows our current state of condemnation. And that's important to understand. Because Jesus did not come to talk about how bad we are. We were already standing condemned. So Jesus did not have to come and condemn us to uh, our, our sinfulness, condemn us to hell. What he's saying here is we stood condemned already. This is our own doing. This is a state that we are in as human beings, in a state of condemnation. We don't need God for that. We don't need Jesus for that. We just need ourselves. And so God loved us deeply that in our state of condemnation, in our state of sinfulness, in our state of evilness, he sends his son. Jesus, not to condemn us. And we constantly get this point wrong. I think it's, it's important to kind of think of this for a moment. Because a lot of times in our life, we look at God as our chief condemner. You know, if, if we don't understand God and we go by what we go on the news, we sometimes can look at God's people and confuse that for God's voice, um, which unfortunately has been a lot different and we look at how people treat each other because we are human. You know, if we think of what the church should be, it should be the worst of humankind. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we act like the worst of humankind sometimes. And so if we look at what God is saying, though, and we look at God's people, sometimes we are confusing the people of God for God. And what the people of God do a lot of times is just condemn the world. You sinners, you bad people, you, you know, I can't believe you're doing this. And it, it, it's, this, it's this deep self-righteousness that we have. It's like, man, you know, I, I haven't done whatever it is. Name a sin. Let's say I'm a, I'm a liar. I haven't lied for a week, and then someone lies to me, and I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> how could you do that? That's, I stopped doing that seven days ago. You're, you're awful, you know? And, it's, and this, this, is, this is our life. The moment we stop doing something, we think everybody else who does it is an idiot, right? You know, I, I think about this for dieting a lot of times. Like, you go to the health nuts, it's like, you're still eating meat, you idiot? <laughs> I stopped four days ago, and my life is great. I'm going to live longer than you. Like, and, and every five months, there's a new documentary on Netflix uh, about some new diet and some new thing. And everybody that follows it, they think everybody else is dumb. Because this is our nature as humans, the self-righteousness, right? We, and it's the same as Christians. We start acting good, you know, and I use that with quotes because we are actually not good. And uh, then we start thinking that everybody else is terrible. And we live in a state of condemnation. And then we, we look at how people are treating people. And then we look at God and say, well, if your people are doing this, you must be doing this to me too. And, but what we have to realize is that God does not need to condemn us because we've already done that. And I, I, I think about, uh, I was, when I was in high school, I was not a good student in high school. Uh, and I, I, was, I never did my homework. I, there's no easy way to put that. I, just, I hated homework. Uh, video games were a lot you know, better than homework, and so I played video games instead of doing my homework. So anyway, suffice to say, I, I dreaded parent-teacher night. Dreaded it. 
because it was, it was the same song and dance my whole life is my mom would go and, you know, I had a routine. I knew how to kind of sandwich it, start it off good and take it to the worst. And then it got better and better as it got on. So we left on a high note, you know, by the end. Uh, and one of these particular parent-teacher nights, there was just nothing I could do to end on a high note. It was, it was bad all the way around. Um, and they always told my mom the same thing. You know, he's really smart. He just doesn't apply himself. He doesn't do his homework. Uh, and so I remember after my mom hearing that from eight different people for an hour and a half straight, uh, and, you know, it was the same thing. Oh, I love Justin. He's doing good. My, one, my, my algebra teacher, I won't forget this, she said, you know, I'm passing Justin because I like him, uh, not for his abilities in math. <laughs> um, and, and, and I remember going home that night, and my mom, the whole car, car ride home, you know, she, just, she was trying to be a good mom, and she was just frustrated with me. She was angry at me. Justin, you know, my parents would always, they would tell me the same thing. You're smart, but you're acting like an idiot. Like, why are you not doing your homework? Why are you not applying yourself? Why don't you care? And it's like, I just didn't care. I don't know what to say. Just didn't seem important to me. Homework was dumb. Six hours of it at night seemed like a huge waste of time. Yes, I know. Thank you, guys. Feeling better already. But what my mom didn't know about me is that I am a very... Um, how do you put it? I'm, so I would say as a self-motivated person, I hated going into those parent-teacher nights just as much as she hated it. I hated the fact that, the, that when my mom went and they looked and they looked at my grades that it had every homework was missing because every new semester, every time I would go home, I'd say, today is going to be different. This semester is going to be different. I'm going to apply myself. I'm going to try this time. And that would last literally 10 minutes through my first homework, and then I would give up. And it would go through such deep states of condemnation for myself. And then here was my mom. She was applying that same kind of guilt, that same kind of pressure. And, and I remember after that parent-teacher night, I didn't talk to her for like three weeks. I just... And it wasn't that I was mad at her, I was really mad at myself, but she finally kind of cornered me um, and got me to talk to her. And so if you know my mom, you know she's pretty good at that. Uh, and so she says, Justin, what is going on? You haven't been the same the last few weeks. I told her, I said, Mom, the, the truth of the matter is, is that you telling me everything I did wrong was just an extra layer. I already knew what I did wrong. Uh, and so I was just, I was disappointed with myself. I was angry at you. Like, why are you making this worse for me when I already knew how bad it was? And so I didn't want to talk to you. I didn't want to be around you. I didn't, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm mad at you and I'm mad at myself. And this is the same way condemnation works. And a lot of times we view God as we view a parent in this situation where we know we're doing wrong and then God is here coming to point the finger at us to make it worse. And then what do we do when we view God in this way? We retreat from him. We run away from him. We're angry at him. We're angry at ourselves, and we stand away. But yet, what the truth of scripture is, is amazing. And I want us today to be at peace and know this. God knows we're bad. We know we are bad. He didn't need to send Jesus to reiterate that point. And so every time you 
sense the condemnation, not from yourself, but from God, remember this, that he did not come into the world to condemn the world. And realize that that means that you can be at peace. So why did Jesus come? Third thing that he says is he says that he came to make a way out of that condemnation. In verse 17, it says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Okay, so I know on my own I am condemned, but what is the good news? That there is a way out of that condemnation. By throwing your full belief on Jesus as your savior, as your advocate, as your master, by trading everything you are for everything he is, your righteousness for his righteousness, your way of doing things for his way of doing things, your life mission for his life mission. In Romans chapter 7, verse 21, it says this. Paul writes, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, and he asks this question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And here's the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. And then listen to this. There is therefore what? Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. All the power of the law to condemn us has been broken in Jesus Christ. So every condemning voice, every power that you may feel like has an authority in your life to condemn you, guess what? Jesus says, I have come and I have set you free from that condemnation. What did Jesus come to condemn? He came to condemn sin. That is who he pointed his finger at and said, you will not rule here anymore. I have come to conquer you. I have come to destroy you. I have come to have victory over you. And so when you want to condemn something, don't condemn yourself. Realize that Jesus brings you out of condemnation and realize that he has pointed at sin and has condemned that. See, this freedom from the law, what's, what's amazing from it is it actually empowers us by the Holy Spirit to live righteous lives. This is not by self-motivated following of the law, but by spirit-empowered love of God. Very, very different things. The last thing that Jesus says here is this. Whoever does not believe in the Son he sent stays condemned. In verse 18 on, it says, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name 
of the only Son of God, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So if you do not believe in Jesus, if you do not believe in what he has done, you are simply staying in your current state, which is condemned. Jesus is not condemning you. God is not condemning you. You are willfully walking away from his path and simply being in a state as is. This is God's ruling. This is his judgment on those who do not believe. Light has come into the world, but you have loved the darkness more and rejected that light. The wicked stay in their darkness because they love their evil deeds more than they love the light, and they are afraid of the exposure that the light brings. This this ending, this call, I think of us, and I, I think of who Jesus was, and I can only think of what he was doing because when Jesus ends in this and he says the, this is God's judgment on people that if, if they reject me, if they reject what I have come to do, then they are rejecting the light and they are staying condemned. So he has made it his mission and he has talked to every single person that he has had conversation with about this one very thing. Come into the light. Reject the darkness that has entered into the human condition, that has entered into the human soul. Accept and receive the Son of Man and salvation that he brings with him. See, we need to rewrite our understanding of God. He did not come to point his finger at us. Instead, he made a way for us a way out of our condemnation, a way out of our evilness, a way out of the darkness. He is the light that came into the world that exposes the darkness but casts it out from our souls. Today we can praise and worship him out of not fear from condemnation but gratefulness for his great love and sacrifice for us. He not only made it possible where it was impossible for us to be with him, but he sent his only begotten son to do so. There was great cost for what he did. When we worship God, we worship him not uh, to try to get out of a state of condemnation. We worship him because he does not condemn us. But he loves us, and what he does is he condemns sin, and he casts it away from our life. He says it's further than the east is from the west. He doesn't look at Justin and see sin. He looks at Justin, and he sees a son of God. He looks at you. He sees a daughter. He sees a son, and he looks at the sin that has tried to make its home in you, and he condemns it. And he says, I've had victory over you. You have no place in us. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks. Come on. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we ever need a 
reason to worship. We don't need to go past the salvation of our souls. When we ever need a reason to praise him, we don't need to think any further than Jesus and what he came to do. When we look at our own heart and we want to condemn ourselves and we want to run from God and hide and be angry at him, realize that God is not condemning you. There's no reason to be angry at him for this. He's condemning that sin. He is casting it out. And he has conquered it. And today we worship and we praise him for his great love towards us. Why don't we stand? Father, some of us here have been hiding in darkness. We have been staying away from you because we've had bad theology about you. We felt condemned. We felt like you didn't love us. We didn't understand, God, that even because of the things that we've done, it doesn't bring us too far away from you. God, I remember the thief next to you on the cross that was dying a just death as a sinner, and yet you took him with you into paradise that night. Father, I pray that we would come to your light, that we would receive you, and with it, your love, your acceptance, your righteousness, your way of life. That if there have been places in our life that we have hid in darkness because of our love for it, our, our, our angst about getting rid of it, about letting it go, Father, that we would allow you to expose those places in our hearts today. Lord, not for you to condemn it, not for us to feel bad about it, but Lord, to realize that that is condemned, that sin, that darkness. And in you, today we can experience freedom in your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We can worship today in that understanding that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him has eternal life.